thing from a, from a passage of scripture in 1 Samuel, the 17th chapter, that we're all familiar with. But hopefully, I'm going to give you some things that maybe you didn't think about in this story. This is the story of David and Goliath. Now, this is uh, part of that three-part three, three part series I was going to work on, so you're only going to get the first part. So hopefully, in the next, next time I come, I can do another, another part of it. But this morning, I want to talk about preparing to fight our giants. And we know I'm going to give you a little bit of background so I don't have to read the whole, the whole story for you. What we have here is that we have the children of Israel at war against the Philistines. Oh, hallelujah. Ooh. Ooh, that feels good. like to have had a picture about that look in the morning. Huh? Ooh, that'll wake you up. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. What's up? Okay, okay, good, good. <laughs> Hope he's done. If not, are you all awake now? You know, there, there's a couple things that wake you up in the service, either doing that or somebody yells amen from the back, and you're sitting there going like this, and all of a sudden there's amen. Oh, oh, wait, what did I miss? What did I miss? But anyway, a little background on this. Now, we have the children of Israel fighting against the Philistines. Now, this is something that happened a lot. If you read a lot of the Old Testament, you're going to find out that this was something that happened a lot. They were always at war with the Philistines and only because they didn't get rid of the enemies like God told them to. If they had done that, then the enemy wouldn't be hanging around to be able to get more powerful, and you wouldn't have to fight them. So they were fighting these Philistines, and they were at the play in the, what they call the Valley of Elan. Now, I've been to this place, so I've seen it, and it sounds just exactly like the Bible describes it. Israel's camp is on the north side, or wherever way north is, and the Philistines are on the south. And it's kind of like a, up on a hill like thing where you could look down. And in here is kind of like a valley. That's why they call it a valley. How about that? Between the mountain areas. Of course, their mountains aren't like our mountains. They're just high things. I don't know how high up they were. But the Israelites were on this side. And the Philistines were on this side. And every day, for 40 days, Goliath would walk down through the valley of Elah. And he would curse the God of Israel. And he would challenge them, saying, oh, come out and fight me. Come out and fight me, because, uh, you know, he's the champion of the, of the Philistines. And he would do this for 40 days, twice a day. And the Israelites, every time he'd come out, they were so afraid of this guy. I mean, sure, he was a big guy. He was over nine feet tall. But that was the only, wasn't the only reason that they were afraid of him. It was bad enough that he's that tall, but he was a warrior from the time that he was young. And so he was a trained, basically a trained assassin or a trained fighter. It'd be just kind of like me trying to fight Chuck Norris on his best day and my worst. I wouldn't have a prayer because of his experience. Wouldn't matter the size because in my lifetime I have uh, <clears throat> done some things to some people that were bigger than me. That, uh, <laughs> so size doesn't necessarily matter in, in that aspect of it. So it was experience more than they were afraid of. And he wanted to say, and he called Israel slaves. Because to them, they were already defeated. And he says, send out one person. Send out just the best, best fighter that you have. Send him out and I'll fight him. And whoever wins becomes, you, you serve them. And if you lose, you're the slaves of the winner. Now, this was something that was common in that time frame. And it makes sense in a lot of respects. I mean, if you've got two people out there fighting, look at all the people that don't have to die. So it is appealing. It is something that's appealing. Now, maybe that's what we should have done with, uh, you know, with Ben Laden. You come out here, Ben Laden, we'll fight you. If our guy beats you, all right, it's all over. 
be nice. Look at all the people's lives we could save. So it did have a time and place in history, and they utilized it, and it worked well because it saved a lot of people's lives, so it made sense. But Israel was terrified of this guy. Every time he went down there and, and said that, then Israel would run back to their camp because, oh, we can't do this, we can't fight that, fight this guy because there was no one there that wanted to be that one person. It, it's all right if you want to go, but not all right if it's me. If it's me, I'm going back to my tent, forget it. So anyway, now that's kind of the, what's been going on. Now David, he's just a young guy, and his three older brothers were old enough of military age, and so they were with Saul, and they were fighting, or cowering in fear, more like it. And so his father told him to go see how his brothers are doing and take some cheese and some stuff to your to the commanders and that and go see how your brother's doing and bring me back a report on what's going on so david he gets up early in the morning and he comes and uh as he's coming there he leaves his stuff with the guy that's in charge of the supplies and then runs out to to say hi to his brothers and see what's going on and this is where this story starts right here in verse 23 as he was talking with them Goliath came forward and challenged the Israelites as he had done before, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw Goliath, they ran away in terror. Look at him, they said to each other. Listen to his challenge. King Saul has promised a big reward to the man who kills him. The king will also give him his daughter to marry and will not require his father's family to pay taxes. Ooh, that would be a nice blessing, wouldn't it? Not to pay any more taxes, you'd get half your income back or more. Now, David, he was sitting there, and, and this was something that, oh, what's going on here? He's looking around saying, what in the world's going on? He's sitting there with an army that's supposed to be at war, and all they're doing is running and hiding. So everybody's afraid, and he doesn't understand why. And David, the reason David took this whole story is about, is about David's passion. It was his passion about his God. And that, when, the, when Goliath said something, man, this just... You ever been that, you know, it kind of just raises up within you, that righteous indignation or whatever it is that comes up inside you. And that's what happened to David. And he was very passionate. He says, hey, you know, he decided right then, hey, you guys want to run, you know, it's going to be me. So he decided in his heart he was going to do it. And then we have um, verse 26. I'm reading this from the Good News Version in case you were, you know, kind of wondering why it doesn't quite line up. It gives a more today reading of it. In verse 26, it says, David asked the men who were near him, what will the man get who kills this Philistine and frees Israel from this disgrace? After all, who is this heathen Philistine to defy, to defy the army of the living God? Now, David, if we don't know what's really going on here, we're kind of saying, well, what's, the, what's he saying here? What's he, what he's saying is basically, in essence, have you ever sat down at the dinner table? And uh, maybe it's your kid or, or maybe it's your wife. Usually it's the wife and the you know, husband they're eating. And the husband asks the wife, are you going to eat that? Does that mean that he's, he doesn't want it? That means that he wants to eat it if you don't want it. He's going to take it. And that's basically what's happening here. David's saying, what will happen to the man that will fight him? He's saying, are you going to eat that? Is anybody else going to do that? I, you know, that's what he's saying. And sometimes we don't read that translation in there. But he's already got his mind made up at that point that he's the one that's going to do it. This isn't so much a story of courage as it is about passion. He had the passion to be able to fight the, to fight the giant. And he took responsibility to kill him. If we have a passion, we have to have responsibility that kind of goes with it. 
Passion's good because passion is what spur, it spurred him on. It wasn't so much courage because courage, you know, kind of happens instantaneously. You know, you get courageous and you do something without thinking about it. But David, he was thinking about it, and he had a passion in, his, in him to fight for God and not allow this Philistine to defame his God. And that's what's going on here. And uh, in verse 32, so after he gets this, after he hears this and they say, you know, I'm willing to do it, then Saul hears about it because he was talking about it like this. Are you going to eat that? Are you going to do this? Verse 32, David said to Saul, Your majesty, no one should be afraid of this Philistine. I will go and fight him. Now, he broadcasts enough, and nobody was willing to step up to the plate. Nobody wanted to. Everybody's running. And all of a sudden, Paul hear, uh, Paul, Saul hears that there's one person that's willing to do that. And they don't care. Oh, bring him in here. I want to hear. I want to talk to him. And they, he said, I'll fight him. I'll fight him. Because it's the passion. They did a survey to find out why is it, is it that firefighters will go into a burning pil- building. What is it that causes them to ignore the danger and to do that? Because it's a dangerous job. And they found out it was passion. Not courage, passion. Because passion will block out danger if you have enough passion to war- for something. And that's what was going on here. He had passion. He said, I'll do it. Nobody wants to do it? Hey, I'm the one. I've raised my hand. I volunteer. I'm going to be the one to do that because of the passion that he had. When I was young, I remember my mom was, uh, she had a very good voice. (laughs) And because of this, it got, you know, people used to make fun of her being your big mouth mom and all this other kind of stuff. But I remember one time we were in a movie I don't want to remember this might have been for all your people's time because you guys are so young, you know. Good Neighbor Sam with Jack Lemmon. It was a comedy. I don't know whether you heard it or not. But anyway, this is really funny. And we went to this movie with my mom and my sister and our friend. And uh, it was an indoor theater. And my mom, when she laughs, she laughs. She, you know, there's, you hear her all over everywhere. Well, when we were in the theater, we were laughing at the show. My mother, you know, uh, Jacqueline was something. He, she said, hang on, I'll be right there. Y'all wait for me, you know, or something in the, from the movie. And just laughing and laughing and laughing. And there was a guy behind us. And he said, that whatever, mom, what kind of mother's that that acts like that in the theater? You know, just bad mouth of my mom. Before I even realized it, I had turned around, grabbed that guy by the shirt, and had him lifted up out of the seat. I didn't care. I didn't care who he was. I was just a teenager. I didn't care. I didn't care if he's bigger than me. It didn't make no difference to me. And I had him right by the neck of the orchestra. And I says, what did you say about my mom? He says, nothing. I says, that's what I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Needless to say, he didn't say a word the rest of the the movie. And when we left, he was the last one to leave the theater because he was, you know, I I made a believer out of him. You don't badmouth my mom. I had a passion. You aren't going to say anything against my mom or I'm going to be right all, all over you like flies on stink. You know, you don't want to mess with her. And that's what's going on here. I had a passion like that, and David had a passion like that. It was, he was bad, Goliath was bad-mouthing his God. If somebody bad-mouths our husband or our wife or our kids, are we just going to let them get away with it? Or are we going to say, hey, that's my kids you're talking about? Or that's my wife you're talking about? And stop them from doing it. We should. We should. We shouldn't let people get away with those kind of things. But that's what's going on here. And the funny thing about it, we find that our wife, your wife, your husband, your kids, your pastor, no one else in this church is responsible 
for our relationship with God. What's our passion for God? No one else is responsible about that for us. So why? If, we are, if we're tolerating things in our life and in our homes, why are we doing it? If our kids are misbehaving and we're tolerating it, why are we doing it? We don't have a passion for it. And that's the reality of it. And if, we, if our passion for God isn't strong enough, that's why we're not accomplishing a lot of things. We have to have that passion because passion supersedes danger. So we don't, need, we don't worry about it. It's amazing when you first get saved how it doesn't, you know, some of the things you used to do when you, got, when you first got saved. I don't know, maybe it was different. Things will look differently. All of a sudden, you, you weren't. Somebody comes, oh, I got saved last night. I got saved last night. Everybody talks to you. I got saved last night because you had a passion. There was something going on in your, inside you that, that was a passion for what had happened to you. But then as we, you know, kind of live our life and that, it kinda, that passion kind of ceases. But we're the ones that are responsible to keep that passion going, to keep that passion alive. And the first thing that happened to David when he decided he was going to do that, when he decided he was going to be the one, when he decided, I'm going to take responsibility for it. Because it makes, different, makes no difference if you know what the problem is. It doesn't matter if you know what your giant is. It doesn't matter until you take responsibility for it. I'm the one to blame. I'm the one that needs to fight this giant. I'm the one that needs to take care of it. Not my pastor, not my brother, not my sister. It's me, oh Lord, that needs to do that. And we need to have that passion for it. But the first thing that happened to him was doubt started showing up all over the place. Verse 28, Elab, his older brother, heard David fraternizing with the men and lost his temper. What are you doing here? Why, are you why aren't you minding your own business, tending that scrawny flock of sheep? I know what you're up to. You've come down here to see the sights, hoping for a ringside seat at the bloody battle. Elab was mad. I don't think it was mad or and guilty, probably a combination of two, because he wasn't willing to stand up and say, I'll go fight him. You ever notice that? Somebody takes up for, for doing something, and we kind of get a little irritated at that person because you know that we should, be, we should have been the one to do that. We should have been the one that should have stepped out, and somebody else does it, so we have a, feel a little guilty. And we kinda, when you're guilty, you kind of take it out on other people. And so he said, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? And he's jealous of David anyway, because if we'll notice in a few chapters earlier, that was when he was anointed king of Israel. And Elib was probably a little jealous, said, why wasn't I the king? I'm the oldest. Why shouldn't I be the king? Why, was, why didn't he anoint me? So all this stuff that's kind of brewing around in his heart, and then here comes David. He's going to say, I'm going to fight the giant when he, they should have. It shouldn't have been a boy doing it. It should have been one of the soldiers, one of the warriors that were signed up for the job. And how many times in our own life does our own family do the same thing to us? We decide we're going to fight a giant in our life, whatever it might be, or a situation. Then all of a sudden, here comes the voice of doubt. Parents up. Family says, you can't do that. You can't do that. You're not strong enough to do that. You need some help. You, need, you can't do that. And all of a sudden, all this discouragement all over the place that we face, because who knows why? But as soon as you decide you're going to do something, as soon as you decide you're going to face your diet, as soon as you're going to decide that you're going to be the one, as soon as you decide you're going to take responsibility for it, and it's not your pastor's job or your husband's job or your wife's job, it's your job, here comes doubt. And we do that to our own kids. How many times do we tell our kids? You can't do that. Stop doing that or whatever, if it, whatever it might be, and discouraging them that, when we shouldn't. But we do for whatever reason. And we have verse 33. After they, his brother got through chewing on him, then Saul sent for him, and he come to, to Saul. 
And Saul, you know, like a lot of people, have you ever seen a, a country western singer or somebody that you like, that you, that you really like their voice, and they sound in your mind, you visualize this person, and then you see him and you think, wow. Well, that's kind of what Saul was doing with David. He was kind of thinking this big, this guy's going to take over and fight Goliath. He must be at least six, seven feet tall. He must be a warrior. He must be all these other kind of things. And then here comes David, brings little David in, little scrawny David, little teenager David. And Saul says, and Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. So Saul, I mean, he's sitting there, he's trying to talk David out of it. Come on, David. You're not old enough to do this. This guy's a warrior. He's been fighting longer than you've been alive. You can't go fight with him. You can't do it. How many times has that happened to us? People look at us, and they're disappointed. They're expecting something different. And they get disappointed. And they start trying to, to uh, dissuade us from doing that, trying to make us be doubtful, trying to make us lose because the devil's good at that the devil knows how to get us where we are we sit there and we want to step up to the blade plate and we're sitting there ready to bat the ball we're ready we're whatever it's our turn two outs bases loaded this is the games on the line and we're two strikes and somebody says, oh you ain't going to hit that you're going to strike out you're too scrawny you're too whatever. You can't do that. You can't stand the pressure. You can't do this. So every place we go, when we decide we're going to do something in our life, no matter what it might be, we're going to have these voices of doubt that's going to come in because the devil's going to see to it. But we have to rise above the voice of doubt. Do you know that animals, when you're afraid, can sense it? They can sense fear. And so if you're around an animal, especially a dog, who's barking at you, barking at you, and you're sitting there and you're backing up because you're so afraid and all you're displaying is fear, they're going to feed on that fear. And that's what the enemy does. He feeds on our fear. So if we're afraid of something and we're not going to face something because of fear, the enemy feeds on that. And all he's going to do is keep feeding us fear. He's going to start here. We're just a little bit afraid. See, the first day that Israel heard this crying out from Goliath, that's when they should have took care of it. That's when somebody should have went down there and taken care of it. But they didn't. They allowed fear. Then the second time that day it happened. And so by the time after 40 days, twice a day, this guy coming out and saying these kind of things, they were, they were terrorized. They went from a little fear and inconvenience to being terrified. And there's a big difference between fear and terror. Fear is something that might happen. Terrorize is something that you know is going to happen. So they knew in their hearts, they had no faith, that if they go down there, they're going to be killed. And they're going to be the only one that's going to die that day because everyone else is going to be a slave. I'd rather be a slave than dead. This nation was formed by people that didn't want to be slaves. They'd rather be dead. Give me liberty or give me death. That's how this nation was formed. But if they'd let fear enter in, they never would have faced, faced the giant. They would have never, ever broken away from Britain. And we'd never have the nation that we did. They had to face their fear. They had to do that. Fear focuses on our inability to defeat our giants. And if we have a passion or something, we just do things automatically. I remember one time when I was a, a teenager, we were sleeping out in our neighbor's yard, in, in our, my girlfriend's yard, backyard. You know how you do? You sit there and talk half the night or whatever. We were talking, and I thought I heard something. It was a fenced yard. And I thought I heard something like a fence clanging or whatever. So I looked over there, and I seen somebody duck at the end of a car. I mean, without even thinking, I just get up, and I'm chasing after this guy, chasing after this prowler, clear up the road. And finally, I came to my senses. I thought, man, what am I going to do if I catch him? 
What am I going to do? <laughs> so then I, you know, kind of went back. But see, that's what passion does. Passions don't look at the consequences that's going to happen. Passion looks beyond the fear we have and enables us to do it, to do whatever the task may be. And if I would have caught him, I probably would have beat him up because at that time I had passion. It's when the passion started to wear out and reality started sinking in, that's when I had a problem. That's when, whoa, back up, Saunders. What are you going to do here? If you catch him, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So allow that doubt to enter in. So I don't know what would happened if I'd have catched him. I caught, catched him. Caught him. Poor English. My English teacher's rolling over in their grave. They did a survey of race car drivers. And in this survey, they wanted to know what separated the winners from the losers. What was it about this? Is there one trait that made the winners stand out over the ones that, didn't, that lost, that lost the race? And they all wired them up to all these these machines and stuff like that to monitor everything, and they found that all of them were equally terrorized of what they were going to face because at any moment, you know, they could die. That's the reality of it. They could die. So they all had a little, you know, had fear in their heart. They all had perspired because of all the apprehension, all the things that were going on in their lives at, at that time. But the only difference they found was that when the race car driver went around the curve, the winners accelerated. The losers decelerated. And that was the main difference. Because their passion for what they were doing, they didn't think about it at the time. They just automatically knew if I want to win this race, i got to step on the gas. I don't step on the brake, I step on the gas. And that's what passion will do for us. Passion will help us to step on the gas instead of slow down. But if we don't have the passion, we don't have the fuel, we don't have the ability you know, to do that. So if that's so important, if, if doubt causes so many problems, how do we conquer it? Pretty simple. We have to believe. Faith, opposite of faith, is belief. Belief, doubt. One goes, hand goes in the other. And we think that Abraham, you know, we talk about he's the father of our faith. And we think that he never, ever doubted God or never did anything wrong. But if you'll read his life, you'll find out that isn't true. He made a lot of mistakes. He did a lot of things wrong. We have a lot of the problems in the Middle East because Abraham doubted some of the things. He didn't really doubt. He didn't, didn't see how things could happen. If it wasn't for Hagar and Ishmael, we wouldn't have near the problems that we're having over in the Middle East right now. Everybody's fighting over the same, the same God or what they think is the same God. So a Abraham just had a faith and a confidence knowing that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. He made some wrong decisions, but he had a confidence in God that wasn't going to be wavered irregardless of anything that was going on. And that was the difference. So we're going to make mistakes. We're going to do things that are wrong. But we've got to raise above that. We have to know that all things work together for our good. We need to see the light at the end of the tunnel. No matter what we're going through, we've got to let our passion and that survive. You know, get us through there. We have to trust God and know that he's going to do that. We have to go where faith is. That seems logical. If you want something, if you go to the grocery store and you want uh, some fruit, you've got to go there to get it. You've got to go to a certain place to get it. And if, have you never noticed, if you've ever gone to work or whatever, work or wherever you're at, if someone in there is tired and they start yawning and they start howling, next thing you know, you're yawning. If I yawned this morning, in two minutes, about five of you would be yawning. <laughs> There's just something about that because it's contagious. If I'm tired that, or if I'm depressed, it's going to wear on you. If all I do is talk about doubt and I talk about fear and I'm talking about all these things, that's what's happening in the society now. In America today, we're all fearful. All they're talking about is the economy and how bad it is. And, it, and people are afraid. 
And they thought, man, how are we going to get through this? And next thing you know, everybody's afraid. And, the, and the, where's the faith? Where's the faith? Where's our confidence in God? The nation's about ready to destroy it if, we don't, if we're not careful. And we step across, it doesn't matter. God's going to work it out. And, you know, Lord Terry, in 20 years from now, our kids are going to laugh at some of the things that, that we said. They're going to have, a, have things said in 19 or 2008. And they're going to be laughing at them just like we did laugh about those things. So we have to go where faith is. If you want to raise oranges, you don't try to plant them in Alaska. won't work. You either have to plant them in Florida or California or somewhere the weather is tolerant of them, or you have to build a greenhouse, one or the other. Those are the only two ways you're going to grow, grow oranges around here is in a greenhouse. You're not going to grow them anywhere else unless you go there. So church and church is a good place to build faith. You come to church, we hopefully give you faith and give you confidence to be able to fight whatever's going on in your life. Fellowshipping with believers when you talk about God and talk about how and encourage one another, that builds faith. That's one of the main reasons to come to church, to help build your faith. Because we have, we have got enough faith here. By Sunday afternoon, we got faith. But by the time Monday happens, the faith starts waning. So that's why we need to come back. We need to fellowship with believers to keep feeding that faith and keep feeding it because faith is contagious. Doubt is contagious. Faith is contagious. And we have to rise above the voice of doubt in our life because they're going to be all around us. And we if we know that going in, then hopefully it won't destroy our passion. If we want to face our giants, we have to grow from past experiences. In verses 34, starting at 34, it says, David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came up and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and smote him and slew him. For your servant has killed the lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. For he has defiled the armies of the living God. That's what passion does for you. It relates on the past experiences. But if we don't have any past experiences, what are we going to relate on? God prepared David for Goliath when he killed the lion, when he faced the lion. He prepared him for Goliath when he faced the bear. That's when he prepared him. He didn't prepare him when he walked up that hill and seen him come out there the first time. If he hadn't had those past experiences, he never would have went down there and faced Goliath. That's kind of a big challenge. So basically, the lion was a bigger challenge than the lion or the bear. Now, I don't know. I've seen some bears, and I you know, don't think I'd want to face either one of them. But he wasn't afraid, you know, and that's what passion does. He was there to protect his flock. So he seen the lion, and he come after one of his lambs, and he went there, and he took it right out of his mouth because he didn't care. You know, he didn't worry. His logical fear or whatever wasn't there because of his passion. That's why passion is so important to us. I remember when we was at our um, apartment complex where we moved here, waiting to move here, and uh, are taking my dogs for a walk. And here comes running at me two pit bulls. Full bore. And I'm sitting here with my two little dogs. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I didn't even think about it. I just went down, picked up my dogs, and I grabbed them. I didn't care. They're going to have to go through me if they want to get my little dogs. You know, luckily the Lord protected us. But I didn't know that. I didn't know whether they were going to be friendly, whether they wanted to chew me and the dog both up. I didn't know that. But it was passion that made me do it. Passion and my love for my puppies, for my babies. That's what caused me. And that's what spurred it on. And when we have passion for God and his love in our hearts, then we can go outside of things that we don't think we can do. 
David didn't know that day he was going to face a giant. Today, there's giants that are in our own lives that we, we didn't know we was going to have to face a year ago or last week, but they're here today. So we need to look at past experiences. That's why, you know, the song says, count your blessings, name them one by one. Why? So we can prepare for the next giant, for the next problem in our life. And we look at the times that God delivered you me from this, and God delivered me from the lion, God delivered me from the bear, God delivered me from all the things. That's why it's important to write this stuff down. As you get older, you know, our minds aren't as, as crisp as they need to be sometimes. And so we need to have something that we can remind us of our past experiences. Because past experiences is what's going to feed our passion. And that's what's going to help us get through the giant and to be able to face him. So you can't get through the giant if you can't face it. You've got to face it before you can do anything. You can't fight him until you face it. And taking responsibility to do that, you need to do. Next thing we need to do is we need to embrace a strategy equal to the task. I, I don't know whether you've, you've probably all seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that one scene where um, Harrison Ford's in the alley, and here comes this, this Arab with his knives flaying like this, you know, going like this and coming at him, Harrison Ford just picks up his gun and shoots him and says, just like him, bring a knife to a gunfight. And that's sometimes what we do. We bring a knife to a gunfight. We underestimate the enemy. We underestimate the power that it has over us. And so we're bringing a knife to a gunfight. And then we're wondering why. Why am I having this problem? In uh, verse 38, it said, Saul gave his own armor to David. For him to wear a bronze helmet which he put on David's head and a coat of armor. How many times do we try to put on someone else's armor? Someone else's way of doing things? There are so many books out there, I'm just amazed at all of them. If you have a problem, if you have a giant, hey, just look it up on the internet. They've got a book about it. And it tells you how to defeat that giant in your own life. How to face it. There's gobs of them. There's all kinds of strategies out there for us to utilize. And we want to use someone else's armor. Verse uh, 39. And David strapped Saul's sword over the armor and tried to walk, but he couldn't because he wasn't used to wearing them. I can't fight with all this, he said to Saul. I'm not used to it. So he took it off. David found God's will by trying different options. We've got to have our mind open because it isn't just one way God wants to defeat something. Just because such and such or somebody over here, it worked for them, doesn't mean it's going to work for you. It's okay to try that. It's okay to look at all the options that we have open to us, but we don't have to be locked into it because it isn't going to fit everybody. One size doesn't fit all. We're all different and we're all individuals, and we all have different giants in our life that we need to face, and we all have to utilize the information that we have. But it's okay to try them. He tried on Saul's armor. He tried it on. He didn't say at the beginning, oh, I'm going to use that. I've never used it before. He was willing to try it on. And he tried to walk around in it, and it was hard for him. Saul was a real tall Israelite. He was over six foot tall, which was uncommon for Israel pe uh, people over there. They weren't really that tall. They were usually around average 5'10", or 5'8", 5'10", you know. That was to be a tall person. And so he's sitting there. It's bad enough that it isn't his, but then he's, you know, it's not his size either. But he was willing to try it, and he walked around in it and tried to see if it would work, see if he could utilize this to, to do it. But in reality, he couldn't do it. He went back to his experiences. How did I defeat the lion? 
How did I defeat the bear? How did I defeat some of the other things? And that's what we need to ask our own selves. How did I defeat some of the giants in my life in my past? Because in your, as you're walking with Christ, the giants are going to get bigger. They're pretty soon, you know, little, first they got little things that you have to deal with when you first, you know, when you first saved. You ever notice that? Had little things, and you had to overcome the little things. And it seemed like God heard every single one of your prayers and dictated them, and the answers were down there before you even got up off your knees. I used to get, when Randy got saved, it seemed like everything he prayed for, it got answered. I meant within days, and I'm going, man, I'm giving you my prayer list. Why isn't God hearing me like that? Because God's building his faith up. God's building his faith up. I'm supposed to know better then. I'm supposed to know a lot of the things that God was trying to teach him. And that's what happens with us. When we first become Christians, we have smaller things that we have to deal with. They seem like momentous things to us at the time. But as you look back at it, it wasn't a mountain. It was just a little molehill, a little gopher hole. But now the mountains are starting to get bigger. The giants are getting bigger. And we need to look back and say, well, how did I defeat them? Will that apply to this giant? Will that apply to this particular thing I'm going to? Can I do the same thing here and have it work? We have to try different options, and it's okay. It isn't doubting God if you're trying different things because God wants you to try different things. He doesn't want us locked into one certain way of doing things. That's why we have all kinds of different churches because if we didn't, where would the variety be? If we only had one restaurant in town and that's the only thing all of us had to eat every day, every day, every day, we wouldn't like it very much, would we? That's why we have a Mexican restaurant, and we have another Mexican restaurant, another <laughs> We used to have more variety than what we do. It's for that. Now we have a Wednesdays and a McDonald's, and now we have three hamburger joints in the place. You know, it tells you where our focus is. Because we don't need to worry. We want to try different things. We don't want to be locked into one way of doing it. We want to evaluate it with our past. How did we do it? How did I fight them? How did I do it? I prayed more. Did you, are you praying more then? That's a good thing to do. Pray more. Ask God for strength. Ask him to give you that passion. Let that passion burn in your heart because until you have that passion for it, first time somebody doubts you, that's going to be it. You're going to be running like the Israelites did from Goliath. So we have to do that. Try different options. And we need to look at our, our giant and say, is what I've do, been doing in the past, is it working? Getting mad about this giant, getting mad about the situation I'm going through, is that working? Is that working for me? If it isn't, try something else. Whatever strategy that we're using, trying to get it, and it isn't working, we need to try something else. And if you run out of options to try, then come to the pastor. Ask him. I've tried these kind of things. I don't know what it is. I don't know how I'm going to fight this giant. I don't know how I'm going to face it. What can I do that I haven't done? And that's why it's important to hang around with Christians in that, because they have gone through some things you haven't gone through. And they went through them in a different way than you have. So you can kind of Compare notes and say, well, when I was going through that, this is what I did. And think, oh, hmm, that might work. And you try it. So it gives you more options to do. But we don't need to be locked into one way. And if it isn't working, we need to quit doing it. They say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, if it is broke, we need to fix it. So if something in our life isn't working, if something's broke, then we need to fix it. We must think courageously before we can act courageously. I remember um, there was uh, years ago, I don't know, maybe you didn't hear about it, it's been a long time ago, where this one football coach took over this team. And this was a losing team. I'm telling you, they heart, they, if they won a game in like three years, it would have been, you know, they'd have put it up on the thing, it been a national holiday in the country or something. But they were a terrible team. And this guy took over. And these people became so 
uh, used to losing and so used to being defeated that no matter what they did, they were defeated. Why? Because they didn't have a passion for winning. They had a passion for losing. But he took all these guys and he took them all in the gym and he laid them on the floor, told them to lay down, and he turned off all the lights and he said, I want you to imagine yourself catching that pass, running for a touchdown. I want you to imagine if you're the quarterback throwing that pass down there. It just perfectly lands right in the guy's hand, just like, just like catching a pillow. I want you to visualize the stuff. If you're a lineman, I want you to visualize yourself knocking those guys down at the, at the line of scrimmage and knocking them on their butts. If you're defense, I want you to visualize yourself getting through the lineman and tackling the quarterback and sacking him. And that's all he did. He said, I want you to visualize this. I want you to visualize it in your mind. And they did. And it's an amazing thing happened. They started winning games. Because something changed. What they were doing, their strategy wasn't working anymore. They had to change. They were so used to losing, so used to being defeated, that they could not see victory even if it was right in front of them. So he had them do this, and they visualized themselves doing that. If we can't visualize ourselves defeating whatever it is in our own life, we'll never do it. We have to believe that we can do it. We have to visualize and see ourselves in our mind. Only vain imaginations are something we need to tear down. Not good imagination. God gave us imagination to be used. That's what he gave it to us for. So we can imagine ourselves winning. We can imagine ourselves beating up that giant. Then we'll be able to do it. But if we can't see ourselves doing it, we never will. How many kids, when, they were, when they're young and they played doctor, grew up to be one? How many kids, when they, when they were younger, played basketball? And they, all they wanted to do was play basketball. And they grew up and they fulfilled their dream. Some people didn't because of their the reality of their inadequacies physically or whatever it might be didn't work out. But the reality, and generally, if we can't visualize it in our own mind, if we can't see ourselves winning it, if we can't see ourselves standing over our giant and defeating it, we never will. That's why the passion, we have to have the passion because the passion spurs us, it feeds us. It's like sick them to a dog. It's the passion. When we say we have passion, it's like sick them. We can tell your dog, sick him. We know what that means. And that's what God says to us, sick him, sick him. Don't stand there, sick him. And then all of a sudden, they'll be so shocked, the giant will be so shocked and fearful to turn back, and then all of a sudden, the passion, we can feed on their fear. And now we can just feed them, because they're pretty soon they'll start running. We need to let, we will let our giants to harass us. Will we let our giants harass us like David did, or are we going to defeat them? Verse 45, David answered, You are coming against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of Israelite armies, which you have defiled. This very day the Lord will put you in my power. I will defeat you and cut off your head. I will give the bodies of the Philistine soldiers to the birds and animals to eat. Then the whole world will know that Israel has a God. This very day... That's what we need to say to our giant, whatever it might be. This very day, you're going down. And the people around us is going to know there is a God that lives in my heart. There is a God in heaven that I serve. And there is a truth there because we don't lay down. Are we going to let our giants get us? Or are we going to stand in fear? Kind of up to us. We have a choice. Everything we do, we have a choice. We can stand in fear and we can run like the Israelites did or we can let the passion of God rise up in our heart and let his passion spur us 
on to defeat our giant. We have to face it. We have to identify it because we don't know what the giant is. David knew what the giant was. He could see it. And if we evaluate our lives, we can see lots of giants in our lives. I have a lot of giants in my life that I fight, and I know that all of you do too. And it doesn't matter what that giant is. It could be bad temper. could be pornography. could be finances. It could be alcohol or drugs. We're used to focusing in on those kind of giants. Those are kind of, you know, big things that we think when we think of a situation or a giant in our life, we think of those kind of things. But it isn't always that big. Sometimes it's, man, I just can't tell somebody no. I just can't tell somebody that I'm, that I'm a Christian. I can't tell somebody, I can't witness to them. I can't talk to them about the Lord. That, maybe that's the giant what we're facing. Maybe that's the issue that we're dealing with. That's just as much a giant as or anything else that we have in our life. Anything that keeps us from doing what God wants us to do and be able to proclaim him is a giant. And we need to defeat it. How we defeat it? We have to figure out what we're going to do. It's one thing to identify the, the giant, another to take responsibility for it. And that's what we have to do. And that's what passion will do. Passion will say, hey, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to destroy it. I'm the one that's going to be it. No, no, no one else may do it, but I will. We need to take responsibility. Because if we're facing a giant, I can't fight your giants for you. You can't fight them for me. Your husband or your wife can't fight them. We have to do it. And the same God that David serves is the same God we serve. Sometimes we sit there and we get, we say, well, we're a victim. And we got to get that mentality out of our lives because if we sit there and we talk about, well, it isn't my fault. My dad was an alcoholic. My mom was an alcoholic. My dad used drugs. My dad this. My dad that. My mom did this. My mom did that. That doesn't make us a victim. It gives us a giant we have to kill. We can't let that destroy our lives because that's our giant. We've got to quit being victims as Christians and start taking up the, the sword and start fighting our giants and start facing them. That's what we have to do. Otherwise, we're going to stand up on one side of the thing and the giant's going to come out every day, maybe, twice, maybe, maybe more than twice a day, and it's going to say, I'm the champion. Come on, if you think you can fight me, come out here. Because Goliath had all the faith in the world that he was going home victor. He was going to be the victor after all. Look at that scrawny little kid. Look at that scrawny little kid. And the devil's saying the same thing to us this morning. Look at that scrawny person there. Who do they think they are? I've been doing this for thousands of years, and they think they can face me. They don't know how powerful I am. And we're sitting there, and we cower back and say, Oh, oh, it's a big giant. I can't face it. I can't face it. Oh, I can't do it. But the reality is the same God that was there for David is the same God that we serve today. We'll sit there and we look at all kinds of excuses that we may have. And we look, we live on what if. What if I try this and it doesn't happen this way? What if I do this or what if I do this? And, we, and because we, these what ifs, we don't do anything when five stones are sitting at our feet. God had the five stones there. And God prepared those stones for David long before David even, even was there. He knew he was going to need them. So he put them there. He put them there for David. So he could pick him up. He didn't have a lot of, need to have a lot of time going down there. He just went down there and he picked him up. And he put him in his pouch. And that's what we need to do. We need to start looking at the circumstances around us and start saying, what are the stones that God has given me to conquer this giant that I have in my life? And I'm here this morning to tell you, you don't have to live with your giant. You don't have to listen to him harass you day after day after day. You can defeat him. You can defeat him by making up your mind you're going to